hello, is there anybody out there? Just nod if you can hear me. If so, thank you for finding this podcast. I'm a huge Pink Floyd fan. I couldn't help myself. I've been plotting this for a few years. I do procrastinate sometimes, but finally the time felt right. My wife, Jennifer Dempster, is a co-executive producer. We've been wanting to collaborate on something for a while. And the title was her idea. Who you got? Because it's a question you get a lot in my profession. When I was a wannabe sportscaster college student, I got the chance to hang out with the great John Madden. And people kept coming up to John. Hey, who you got? John got grumpy. I made a note. Avoid that question to people in the business. But you do get it often, and I don't get grumpy. But now when people say, hey, Fowler, who you got? Instead of hemming and hawing or answering Bama or Clemson, I can say, I got a roster of guests that you're going to enjoy. This is not a sports pod. But a lot of the guests you're going to know from the sports landscape, sports storytelling is going to be a part, I think, of most episodes. The topics are going to be surprising, intriguing, sometimes inspiring. The point of any podcast, Human Conversation, we thought we'd make it the topic for episode one. So we invited four skilled interviewers and superb storytellers to share some moments that ranged from the triumphant to the tragic, the edgy, the cringy, as well as the newsworthy. Now, all four of them got rolling. So we debut with a jumbo double album. Not trying to copy Clapton and Derek and the Dominoes or Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Their debuts were both double albums. It just worked out that way. Why cut out good stuff? So consume it at your leisure. We've got Willie Geist, Maria Taylor, Rich Eisen, Jeremy Schapp. We had the lead card and we were in traffic, by the way. And people would look over and go, and at one point, you know, everyone's filming with their phones. And like, what are you doing? And I just, we're making a new movie. It's called Willie and Al. And I was like, oh my God. I really, I, I called my wife out. I said, I, I just need to tell you what just happened to have it on the record. Remember, it was a little bit of a soliloquy. Like it was like, everyone's forcing me to make a comment on my quarterbacks and I don't have to do it and I'm not going to do it. So quit asking. And my, re my reaction was just like, I hear you coach. And we moved on to the defense or something. Like I knew that we're not barking up this tree anymore. He's going to join us. We're going to talk and he's, he's ready to roll. And he proceeds to call me Rick throughout the entire interview. Years later, if you get a bunch of us in the room, it's brought up the uh, famed Junior Seau Rick Eisen um, uh, interview on NFL Network. Here I am, I'm 23 years old and I've got Bob Knight in the chair and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be tough. You know, I'm going to ask him all the hard questions. So. He, he says, I'll never forget the exact words. You were doing very well up until now, but now you're in over your head. And I think he's, I think he punctuates it. I think, I don't, don't, this is bullshit. This is all bullshit. <laughs> and he starts threading the microphone out from under the sweater. Really flattered to have these four friends and colleagues join me. They've got great stories to tell you. But I thought on episode one, I would kick it off with a story. By far the most painful interview I've ever done. You never saw it. It never aired. It was that awful. Go back to early Winter X Games in Vermont, Stratton Mountain. We got this 
young musical artist, not a megastar yet, but he's about to break very, very big. And he was obliged to sit down with us in our casual little set in a converted ski lodge before his X Games concert. He shows up exactly on time. We aren't ready. Get the light rigs are still being set up. We got crew running around everywhere. We're not even close. So I'm the very young host looking about 13 in my little ski sweater. And I've got to walk over to a very punctual and very pissed off Eminem and break the news to him that he's going to be made to wait a while to talk to me, a total stranger, about snowboarding. He did not take that news well. And I can't blame him. That news was totally our bad. So trying to smooth things over, I ask him, is there something I can get you while we wait? He answers, yeah. You can get me the name of the mother who works for me, who booked me on this interview, so I can fire his ass. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just yammering and stammering. Uh, well, Noah, is there anything else we can get you? A bottle of Hennessy. And that we could get. It was, this was a converted bar. It was two in the afternoon, but I wasn't going to judge. Eminem has a henny. It does not improve his mood. He felt disrespected. Um, we were at fault. Totally. But finally, we're, we get the lights good to go. We sit down. First question. So Eminem, I hear he into extreme sports. No. Not really, he says. I've been assured by a producer that Mr. Mathers was into extreme sports, but that was incorrect. Kid from Detroit was not, in fact, a snowboarder. And this goes on like that. He's got zero connection to these sports. He's got nothing to say about them. We're going nowhere. Mostly he's just looking down. When he does bring his eyes up, he's got this look. It says to me, you're getting nothing from me. I mean, a minute or two into it, I'm thinking, thank God we're not live. I knew this would never, ever see air. I just pulled the ripcord, which you hate to do as an interviewer. But at that point, we had already crashed. I just quickly, politely thank him, let him go off to find his guy who arranged the interview so he could, quote, fire his ass. And I remember thinking, God, I hope this tape is quickly bulk erased. The Eminem interview. I'm a huge fan of his, by the way, for many years. Love his music. But that was the most painful interview ever. And the last interview that he and I have done. Never happened to my first guest. Willie Geist has storytelling in his blood. His dad, Bill Geist, still has a wonderful career as a journalist and an author. Willie's the pride of Vanderbilt. He started in sports at CNN. Joined Morning Joe with Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski. He's been there for the last 13 years. And Willie's become a star. Co-host of the Today Show. Anchors Sunday Today with Willie Geist on NBC. And you can catch his Sunday sit-down podcasts, which are great fun. Willie Geist, you are so kind to join and lend your expertise because you have run the gamut in terms of interview style, format, the goals, the, the Sunday sit-downs that you do on Sunday today with some of the most famous people in the world are, are known for being revealing and comfortable and just fun to watch. 
The Morning Joe, different goals, different type of backdrop for those interviews. So you really have, have spanned the spectrum, my friend, in terms of interviews. Yeah, it's a good balance because Morning Joe, as you say, Monday through Friday, you are in the, you are in the mud, you are in the weed, <laughs> battling with politicians and partisans and everything else. So that Sunday interview is a nice breath of fresh air when you just go to a restaurant or a bar and sit for an hour with Bill Murray or David Letterman or go out to LA as we did a couple of months ago, which feels like a lifetime ago now, but with Al Pacino. And those are like, you know, the, your job is morning Joe and you gotta get to the news and you gotta get answers from people. But sort of the luxurious interview is that Sunday interview. It feels that way for a viewer. We'll get to those in a second, but going back to the place where you've been since 07, I believe, in Morning yeah, Joe, where, as you said, it's partisans who have an agenda. They're there to use your time for their benefit. They're politicians. And, and you know when you're sitting there that every answer has the potential to make news. And it being live, there's just no safety net. Have you, you know, started to sweat through your shirt in some of those moments? Because it can be it can be stressful, especially in the early days. It, it can be, but you know in politics that everyone's coming with an agenda and you generally know what the agenda is. But I enjoy that and it's, it's you're good at this too, it's preparation. You know, you know everything about that person, you're ready for whatever, you know, choose your own adventure storyline they're gonna go down, you can roll with that. And, um, and as you say, it is live. And so sometimes they surprise you and you're not ready for it and that's when the sweat starts to come through your shirt, as you say. I was going to say, you can prepare, but then there are just those moments where it, it takes a sudden turn and either something clicks in their head that, that says this isn't going right, or I'm going to now press my advantage, or they see that you're too ready for the expected yep. game plan. So now they're going to deliberately take it in a different direction and sort of hijack the proceedings. And that is difficult when it is live. I don't do that many interviews like that, thankfully. But uh, there's that sense in your head, oh, no, 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 you're not going to take our broadcast and, and hijack it for your own purposes. Exactly. And some people are more creative and, and better at that than others. Other people literally will come with like a piece of paper and whatever question you ask them, they're going to the talking points. And that's not as fun when the person is a skilled combatant and is a little slicker in the way they try to circumvent your question, then you kind of try to pull them back. When somebody is just a talking point machine, the audience gets nothing out of that. I try and I get nothing out of that. But when someone is smart and willing to fight you in, you know, in a, in a real way and not in some theatrical way and have an actual debate, I mean, it's sad to say, but so much of what you see on TV does devolve into theater where it's this person's on that side, that person's on this side, and now it's so the meet in the middle and fight. When you actually end up having a real conversation with someone you may disagree with, to me, those are the best interviews. Willie Geis wants a worthy adversary is what I'm hearing from you here. So <laughs> no, I, I think that we're also taught to try to fight and claw to make something of it. Even if your internal dialogue says, now this isn't going that well. This isn't going yeah. like I hoped it would. For our customers, they're not, as you said, getting much out of this. And you do your best to try to salvage it. But I, I've been there. I don't know if you have. There's sometimes you go, you know what? It's it's fourth and twelve. We just got a punt here. I'm just going to cut this short. This is just going nowhere. It's very clear. It's too awkward. It's unproductive. And and we're good. Goodbye, sir. Thank yeah. you very much. Right. Yeah. No, that definitely happens. And your instinct is to push and push and push until you get that person to commit to an answer 
or commit to news. And at some point, it's the law of diminishing returns. When you've asked the question four times, <laughs> change the subject immediately. Is that your limit? Four? You'll go. You'll go four times. Oh, but if you're, and you're right, and then it gets weird for the audience. You know, they're like, "Okay, man, we wanted the answer too, but we're not getting it. Let's move along here or say goodbye to this person." One of the most awkward interviews I've ever given was actually at Morning Joe, through no fault of anybody at the show. Is it was an ESPN PR misstep where we, I was the wrong day. They had given me the wrong day, so I'm out in front of my apartment. Where's the car that the show's supposed to send? It doesn't come. I, it's not an easy subway from Upper West Side to 30 Rock, as you know. So I get there, yeah. I somehow get through the lobby of 30 Rock, even though I'm not on the list. I'm up there, and just the confused look, like, why Why is Fowler here? But he is here. So you threw me in the studio. Minka, if she could have made me disappear with her eyes, I mean, she, she would have. She didn't know why the football guy was in there. You guys that roll with it and did a great job. I felt terrible because I, I knew how tightly formatted that show is. I would have liked to just gone away and come back, but it's... It- we made it through it. in, though. I'm glad we did. And trust me, I promise you, you know us. Whatever we were talking about, we would rather have talked about what you had to talk with. So I'm sorry what? about the scheduling comes. No, like, no, that wasn't your issue at all. It was just, I, I felt terrible about it. I, I was impressed how you guys just roll with it and, and found time in a tight format with much more important things to talk about. But you know what it is about our show? It's a three-hour show. So it is collapsible and expandable, which is it was a great advantage when we talk about interviews. If something's going great, I mean, we've done interviews where it was slotted for eight minutes and it goes 35 minutes. And we can do that. And we can bump somebody later and or say, can you come back tomorrow? Or, you know, skip a segment we were going to do on a different topic and do it the next day. So that is a real underrated advantage of Morning Joe is we are... It's mostly unscripted. You know, we'll read some prompters to set up the nuts and bolts of the story. And then that thing goes off for an hour and we're just talking and it's real. And if the conversation's going well, we just go with it. And that's, you know, my other life on the Today Show, that thing is like, you've got hard breaks because of the commercial spending and local weather and all these things that you've got to get it to the second. And if your conversation's not over, they're going to the commercial anyway. They just go to black on you. So that you feel that if an interview on the Today Show is slated for five minutes, it's going to be five minutes, you know? And on Morning Joe, it's slated for five, and it'd be 45 minutes. And that's that's a great luxury we have. You're so skilled at kind of sensing the vibe and setting the right tone for your guests on the, on the Sunday sit-downs, the long-form recorded interviews that then become your podcasts. Have you ever, at any point whether it's in that show or earlier in your career, made the mistake of sort of misreading the vibe and trying to be overly familiar with an interview subject. I, I had to do that when I was interviewing these X Games athletes who I didn't, that wasn't my core culture, but as host of the show, they asked me to interview them and they would let it be known that although we're, we're down with this network TV thing, I want you to know that I'm representing the core culture and I'm a little too cool to be interviewed by a guy like you. And they weren't wrong. But that, that, that set up the idea that they'll participate, but they're not going to really open up and give any good stuff or make this an entertaining segment for fear that that's going to make them look bad with their core group. You ever try to overstep and feel like you didn't connect with someone that way? You know what I've found, and I've learned from it, and I hopefully I'm better at it now, I think particularly when somebody's funny, the temptation can be to try to be funny with them. Mm-hmm. You know, and so oh, I yeah. I'm, just thought of this while you were talking is we had Larry David on. Um, he was on Morning Joe. This is years ago. And he came on and he was totally Larry David. He was himself. He had a Starbucks 
It had the lid on it with the little hole in the top. <laughs> and we said, hey, a new season of Curb. And he goes, before we start, you know, I invented this. I was a taxi driver in the late 70s. It the comes with the top. I poked the hole in the top. I was the first guy to do that. I get no credit for that. No credit. <laughs> so he went, and it was a genuine, it was really, you know, it wasn't some prepared bit. He looked at that, and he had like a three-minute riff about it. And so the, I think a lot of people fall into this trap is, okay, I'm going to play, oh my gosh, I got Larry David here. I want to play the game with them. I want to play Curb Your Enthusiasm. And the truth is, those guys don't really want to come and have you try out your comedy on them, you know? <laughs> and so I, that was a, that's a good let, I mean, you can still be funny and clever in your own subtle ways and they pick up on that and I think they respond well to it. But the job, if you're, I'm doing Sunday today and I'm interviewing Jerry Seinfeld on stage at the Beacon, is not for me to prove to Jerry how funny I am. It's to give him great opportunities to be funny, which is pretty easy for him to do, obviously. And so I think that is, that's an interesting thought. You've all fallen. That, that takes great restraint, though. I, the, you, you have to sort of learn that because if there's someone you really admire for their humor, you want to show, hey, I got a sense of humor, too. And you, do, you have a great sense of humor. You are a funny person in real life. But to keep that out of the interview when it's their show. Okay, so you, you had David Letterman on, a, a very yeah. kind of nice, long-form interview. And it's hard not to let Dave know, geez, I was there from day one, and I, I really admire you. And you know. Exactly, exactly. And I don't... They want you to know, they want to know that you're prepared for sure. And they can smell that if you're not. So always be totally prepared. But if you start to step over that line of, you know, I was raised on you and you're the greatest and all, then they start to go, oh, those, they just make them uncomfortable. You don't want to put them in that space. And Dave is the perfect example. I mean, I'm not, people always ask me, do you get starstruck in these? I don't think, I don't get starstruck. You get a little more nervous for some than others but David Letterman you're probably the same way we're around the same age was like he was my introduction to what was weird comedy and what was possible yep. and this you know this could be mass marketed just being silly and, and wild and smart and so I really obviously looked up to him and you do have to suppress that a little bit you know because you don't want to fanboy out when he comes in and he doesn't do a lot of interviews no he sort of stepped out his you know his guy stepped down on the ledge a little bit to say all right we're gonna let him do this interview um and so you want to just show that you're ready and that you can hang with him a little bit if he's making fun of you you can take it and give it back i mean his first it was when he had the beard it was early in the beard and my first question was what's the deal with the beard and he like that said what's the deal with your toupee? And so like, first of all, what an honor that David Letterman gave you that insult right out of the gate. And he was still as sharp as he's ever been. And that just opened the floodgates. I laughed at myself and we had a good time. But I think, I think, I do think about that a lot. And then there are other people, musicians, you don't want to act too cool and talk about all the people you know, and that just, mm -hmm. just, you know what I mean? Just be prepared know know everything you can to know about the person and they'll be impressed by that you don't have to try to play their game i think is a good lesson yeah no you've learned those lessons and calibrated it because it's very obvious that people do feel relaxed and comfortable and oh okay this guy's not going to make it about him yeah. and not going to try to parry with me the, the interview you did with with bill murray which has been celebrated a little bit because it was so cool he doesn't do many interviews as you've told the story about trying to reach him on the phone and then he sort of came to new york as i've heard the story he kind of asked to be on a, a sunday yeah. sit down kind of volunteered for it, which he doesn't do at all did you feel the the pressure to make that a thoroughly enjoyable and comfortable experience for him because it was such a rare get 
Yeah, that was a case like Dave where a life's worth of preparation with Bill Murray came in handy because for people who don't know, he doesn't have a manager or publicist. He has no one like that. And celebrities have these layers of people that you go through. He still has all these years later a 1-800 number that if you want to talk to him or get an interview, call and leave a message. This is a true story for Bill Murray. And so our bookers say, hi, this is uh, so-and-so from Sunday Today. Willie Geist would love to interview you. And we never heard back. So most people never hear back. And then he came in to do a live interview on the Today Show with Savannah, I think, one morning. And he was he's messing around, doing what he does with everybody. And he's in the green room. And our booker was there. And she says, you're the booker. I said, yeah. I want to do that Willie Geist show. Let's do that today. And they went, ah, today? Yeah, let's do it right <laughs> after this. And they said, no, there's a whole thing. We've got to get it set up an elaborate shoot. Hey, it's called the Today Show. It's going to be, God, you run, you're not yeah. ready today for a long-form yeah. interview? Come on. Exactly. He's like, just do it. Why don't we just, he slides in the chair after Savannah, and we do another interview. So luckily, he was, we didn't have time to set it up that quickly, but luckily he said, I'm going to be in town for another day. And all he said was, have him come by the hotel at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Okay, so we set up a, a shoot on the roof of the hotel, a little bar at the hotel we were staying, set up our cameras, 10 o'clock, the elevator door is open, his hair's messed up, he's in New Balance shoes, corduroy pants, some free golf zip up he got at a tournament somewhere, probably Tahoe or something like that. And he sat with me for over an hour. And that was another one to your point of don't be the guy who's quoting Caddyshack to Bill Murray because he's going to smell that immediately. Remember the, and then you said this and then you said that the Dalai Lama, big hitter, you know, don't, don't do that. And I think I heard, we were talking before the, the interview about he's a big Illinois basketball fan and my parents went there. So I was raised in Illinois basketball. We talked, it's probably on tape. I bet we're recording 20 minutes about like, the 1989 Flying Illini versus the 2005 Darren Williams, D. Brown team. Yeah. I think even from that, and that was genuine for me, I grew up in them. We had trust right there. And so then unsolicited, he talks about Caddyshack and we get into Ghostbusters. And then he starts telling me SNL stories. He's like, oh, there was this one time Keith Richards and I were in a bathroom stall with a bottle of Rebel Yell while Mick was out on stage singing Some Girls. And you're just going, oh my God. And there are those moments, you've probably had them, where you're always doing your job, but you're looking across and you go, Bill Murray's telling the SNL story. What a gift this is. You know, sometimes you just freeze the moment. What a gift. And I felt that way with Dave and Al Pacino, too. But yeah, the, the ones that don't do a lot of interviews and you can get to tell you things that you haven't heard a million times elsewhere, those are the best. Those are the best interviews. Yeah, that's a great story. I don't know if I had the gift like Keith Richards telling a story quite like that, but that that's pretty good. The, the Bill Murray, Keith Richards nexus is cool. But when it happens organically, like you said, you don't have to prompt them and those stories just start to flow. That's the best. It, you know, Chris Farley had the bit, which viewers relate to, the, the painful <laughs> interview subject when he just basically recounts to the interviewee, remember that time when, when Michael, when, when, you, when you hit that shot and, and you beat the Jazz? That was awesome. And that, there's just sort of no question there. And you, oh, it's just such a cringy thing. And we've all seen interviews where the, the interviewer falls into that. And you just yeah, kind of cringe. The one with McCartney was great, too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That was awesome. That's what he always said. Yeah. You mentioned these, these interviews for, for Sunday Sit Down, which are beautifully produced and elaborately set up. 
And I wonder if you've ever had the angst that I have that something is going to go wrong technically in these elaborate productions is going to mess with the flow. I, I told the story earlier about my disastrous sit down with a very young Eminem because our lighting was not ready for him. And he was on time, which was an upset. And we weren't ready. And the interview just was 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 a disaster and never ended up airing. Your, I'm sure your crew's never made a mistake on NBC, but all the thing, all the multiple cameras, people that don't know, these are incredibly elaborate setups. The lighting takes hours, the yeah. miking, and these guys have a lot, and women have a lot of pride in each of their jobs. They want it to be flawless. Yeah. So sometimes. <laughs> You stop. They want you to re-ask the questions because it wasn't perfect sound. It, yeah. I mean, those are the kinds of things I stress about is the technical things that can break down in a, in a yes. big interview. As you say that, I'm cringing as you say that. I'm thinking about, and I think I won't list names, but there are certain people who are such big stars that they have their own sort of criteria for lighting and camera angles. And so their people will send them ahead of time and so we try to do everything that they've asked to make them comfortable. And then they get there and they sit down and it's all wrong somehow. And so we're, we're starting over, which leaves me and you as the interviewer in the position of sitting in a chair across from them for 30 minutes, trying to make Ooh. small talk and just keep, the, just keep that ball in the air. If it's somebody you know, that's fine, or you've met before. But if it's somebody who's a massive star, and they're just sitting there and they're still a little bit upset about the lighting because it's down here and it should have been right here. And let's start over and where are my people and let's get everybody in here. Then that's when it gets like, I, I feel your pain. I'm going, oh gosh, I'm, you know, I'm going through every little deep piece of research that I've got that I can start a conversation. Using up material before the interview even starts just to kind of keep the thing on track. But you're all in my, in my head, I'm going, okay. Like, what is this costing me by the minute in comfort level in yes. relax? What am I, what am I losing from what I'd hoped to get? Because this thing, we are waiting on the technical aspect. Of yes. This. I tell you one time now that you mentioned that it worked for me was, um, I was interviewing Adam driver and we were in a restaurant in, in Manhattan and we started, he was a little reticent at first. He's not like that big, overwhelming, outgoing guy. And he was a little, he was, he was great, but he was, you know, kind of short answers. And I'm, it was, you know, we're getting to know each other a little bit. And ironically, the big chandelier in the dining room went on. Something happened downstairs and it ruined our lighting. We just stopped down. And they couldn't find the guy who had the key to the box to turn it off. And again, it was 25, 30 minutes. Mm. But in that time, he and I got to know each other. And, and the minute that thing finally went off, he was a totally different guy. So it was almost like that, in that case, it helped us. We had time. And he's got an unbelievable story. He was a Marine and he's got, and we, and, he, and again, a guy who doesn't say a lot usually about his life. We had an amazing hour long conversation that included all those things I hadn't heard before. So I guess it can work both ways, but those moments, it's an already, as you know, an unnatural thing to sit down this close from someone with lights and a bunch of people over there. And that's not a normal conversation. And then when you've got to add 30 minutes of light adjustment before the unnatural conversation, it just, it can be long and you're looking down and you're looking at, you're trying to catch your producer's eye and go, let's go. Like Are you trying to make sure that, 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 that the PR people of your subject aren't catching their eye going like, we got, we got stuff yeah. here. We go, yeah. You hope they have the luxury of time as apparently Adam Driver did because 
someone like a Nick Saban, Willie, as you know, oh. notoriously impatient. If they're if we're messing with the lights for forty five seconds and we're not good to go, I know that's just making my job harder by the second. Right. Yeah, because he's not giving you much to begin with. <laughs> And well, we have a great we have a great rapport, actually, and I, he's far better than people realize. But he's also punctual and he's got yeah. an out time and he's got folks around him that go, hey, you know, if you if you're if you fumble the opening kickoff here and you can't get your act together, we're going to move on. And that's yeah, I, I respect you, but I'm out of here. And that that when you deal with, with people who are artists and you've had Al Pacino's a fascinating guy, but part of their brilliance might be their introverted nature might be their aversion to that kind of interaction you're trying to get and, and their introspection, which gets in the way of a good interview, but it's part of their genius. I mean, does that bring up the blood pressure just a little bit when you know your job's going to be tough maybe to get yes. out of them something? Yeah. He's a, uh, so Pacino doesn't do interviews, number one. And number two, when he does them, he's, he's not known again as an outgoing guy. That was a really interesting one. That was in February of this year. He had a new series coming out on Amazon and um, they, I guess he did a couple of interviews and we reached out and they agreed that we'd be one of them. And he lives out in Beverly Hills. So they said, he's we'll do it in this restaurant he likes. So you go, oh my gosh, Al Pacino, let's go do it. So we, we fly out there and um, again, yeah, that's like hyper, how do, how do you, so you've got 45 minutes, let's say with him. How do you narrow down what you want to ask Al Pacino in 45 minutes? You know, how do you yeah. get there between Serpico and Scarface, everything he's done? And um, so you sort of make an outline in your head. And the good thing about him was he came, this was like an event for him. It was sort of a little bit of a coming out party where he was saying explicitly, I haven't done interviews in the past, but now I'm doing an interview. So I didn't have to drag that out of him. And in fact, if you watch the interview, he said that explicitly. He said, I never would have done this even a few years ago. He's like, but I'm about to be 80 years old. I'm starting to think about my life and my career. And it's fun to do something like this, to look back. And I never, in the past, I just never wanted to talk about myself or my career. And he was so, um, he was so open, first of all. And again, just without my asking, tells the story behind the set, the scenes of the set on Scarface and, how it was a bomb out of the box office and he's so surprised that it's become this cultural thing. And he just told the stories unsolicited. If you, I, I honestly, if you look at that interview, I probably asked like four questions, five <laughs> questions, because he just started telling stories. And by That's me the best. Going, That's the best. And, yeah. And by me going, yeah, yeah. And it encouraged. And there's a couple moments in there where he said, I'm sorry to go on. I go, are you kidding me? I, I was, I will literally sit here all day. And then, um, he got, so we had a great conversation. He was warm and friendly. And then the sort of second element of our interview was we were gonna drive around Beverly Hills in this big boat of a, a Cadillac. It's an Eldorado, I think, like a 74 Eldorado that reflected something in the show, but also was the kind of car he had in Scarface, Tony Montana had. And that, could that be a little gimmicky for him? He's Al Pacino, does he not wanna be riding around in a convertible? But he agreed to it. So we go outside a car I'd never seen, let alone driven before. I'm driving, Al Pacino's in shotgun, and we're driving around Beverly Hills with cameras on us. And you literally, I felt like I was riding through a dream. I'd look over at a stoplight and go, that's Al Pacino. 
is happening in my life that I'm driving Al Pacino? And he didn't want it to end. He, well, they go up here, take a left. I want to show you. There's, you know, something happened up here. Wow. Take a right. And then by the end of it, and we put it in there, he's like, this has just been great. What a joy to get to know you and, you know, you're, and give me a big hug at the end. It was just like, I still think about it and I can't believe it happened. I have to see the tape to verify that that day actually took place. You just kind of fly back to New York without the plane. I mean, that, that is such a <laughs> booing feeling. Were you, were you driving 11 miles per hour around Beverly Hills in this car, running, trying to prolong yeah, it? Roughly yeah. 11. Yeah, we had the lead car and we were in traffic, by the way. And people would look over and go, and at one point, you know, everyone's filming with their phones and they, what are you doing? And I just, we're making a new movie. It's called Willie and Al. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I really, I, I called my wife out. I said, I, I just need to tell you what just happened to have it on the record to make sure it did. So those are highlights, you know, career, life, everything else. Just awesome, awesome days. What a collection of revealing and comfortable interviews, classic stuff. But not all of Willie's interviews have been that comfortable. He did share one more story about the time that he was summoned to interview the great one, Wayne Gretzky. So they can't all be gems. And the greatest hockey player of all time wasn't, wasn't uh, he didn't put the biscuit in the basket in that one? Well, no, he put the biscuit in the basket. It was me. I whiffed on the open net. <laughs> so this was at the uh, 2010 Olympics in Vancouver where he was sort of the grand ambassador, the Olympic Games being in Canada. And I was at the time, this is 10 years ago, I was, um, I hosted a show called Way Too Early, which was on live at 5.30 a.m. on the- Right, East I remember Coast, that. Four morning go. So in Vancouver, it's on at 2.30 a.m. So I'm getting into the, the IBC at midnight every night. I'm waking up at 11 p.m., going to bed at seven or eight. But I'm also out shooting things during the day, trying to get on the Today Show, just going 100 miles an hour. And so the one night, I didn't go out much for obvious reasons because everyone was out while I was in bed. But I did go out one night, finally got some time out, went out with all the NBC people. And my phone rang early in the morning and they said, uh, you know, nobody else is around. Wayne Gretzky wants to do a quick interview. And I sort of woke up in a stupor and I was exhausted after a month of this. And let's be honest, I was a little hungover and I wasn't feeling, I was feeling a little green. And I said, well, of course, where do I come to the IBC? We'll do it in one of this little, you know, this little flash studio. And so I was thinking about, all right, this is a big deal. You know, Costas is still asleep. Nobody else is doing it. It's my turn to do it. So um, I put on... I put on a shirt and then I thought, I'm gonna go for like the sweater and the jacket look. So basically I had like three layers on. <laughs> then I put on a blazer and I haven't slept in a month and I'm hungover. And so I go into this little booth and there's Wayne Gretzky, total gentleman. And they say, it's pretty hot in the booth. I don't, they hadn't fired everything up yet, you know? And I've got four layers on. And um, so they say, all right, three, two, one, interview Wayne Gretzky. And Chris, like I've never had on TV or off, just <laughs> the waterworks from the forehead down. Uh, and if you've ever been in that position, the, the, the more it happens, the worse it gets. You're thinking about it. You're trying to stop it with your mind. And for some reason, nobody stopped the fight. There are producers in there. I'm going, hey, is anybody going like, to throw the towel in here right now? Literally, I could have used the <laughs> towel and stopped this fight. And to his great credit, I'm this close to Wayne Gretzky 
He's talking about how great it is to have the games in his home country. I'm just pouring sweat. And he just, without acknowledging it, he didn't say a word, did the entire interview and just kind of gave me a pat on the back and a wink. Like, I don't know what's going on here, buddy, but I'm glad we got through that together. And he walked out like the gentleman he is. And my producer came in and was like, dude. And I said, dude, what about you? Could have helped me out here a little bit. And uh, so that interview now for all times has been known as the Sweatsky interview. Oh, the Sweatsky interview. I'm going to search for that on YouTube. How great is Willie Geist? Our thanks to him. You can follow Willie on Instagram and Twitter. Same handle, at Willie Geist. And check out his Sunday sit-down podcasts. The baton is now passed to Maria Taylor. Maria has become a really important voice in sports broadcasting. She's my teammate, along with Kirk Herbstreet, on ABC's Saturday Night Football. Works the sidelines on all the biggest college games. Does a tremendous job hosting NBA Countdown. And among her many talents, she's a gifted interviewer. And Maria also has some stories to share. Maria Taylor, thank you so much, my friend, for joining me on this interesting topic. You have been an interviewer supreme on many different fronts, both with NBA coaches and college coaches, which I think are, in general, very different personalities. So what leaps to mind when you think about the the challenges of conversing with another human when they are sometimes not at their best? They're in a pressurized situation, their mind is elsewhere, and you have to try to get something out of them. I always joke, Chris, um, and you know this just from because I've seen you be a sideline reporter before and have to deal with some of these issues that we are on the front lines, basically. And a lot of times coaches are in the middle of battleground mode. So they're in an aggressive state. You know, there's 10,000 things racing through their minds. And it's not just what they want to say during halftime. It's like what happened on the first play of the game and how they want to make sure it doesn't happen when they come back for the second half. So the first thing I'm always trying to do as a sideline reporter is like, big smile, hey, I'm here, (laughs) this is a different moment. Like, you're trying to bring them down with your body language, like I'm trying to be calm, but it doesn't matter. Sometimes you're just going to be in the way, and you're you're just going to catch one. you got to stay in the ring and come back for more. (laughs) What I think is interesting in your job, you get to see within a a three-and-a-half-hour period a coach potentially three times, pre-kickoff where he's got the faraway eyes, he's got the – Urban Meyer used, we used to call it the thousand-yard stare, trying to get something out of them there. As you said, halftime, they're either mad because they're losing or they're on guard because they're winning and they don't want their team to let down. And then if they win, you are out there in that sea of students where they've just been hit with a Gatorade bucket, they're celebrating a win, and now you're trying to corral them because their mind is in a different place. How interesting within that amount of time you're seeing potentially the same coach in three different ways. It's like you're riding a roller coaster of emotion with them. And you're right. When they come out for that first interview, I mean, they're locked in. They've just grabbed their headset. They put it around their neck. You know, we've just had the coin toss maybe, or I'm standing with him while he's watching the coin toss. So sometimes he's like getting together, you know, the kicking team or something and giving them a last minute instruction, or he's got a guy he wants to tell something to right before. And you guys might be throwing down to us. And I've had Dabo just saying to me, hey, I didn't know you played basketball. This is before the ACC championship. He's, he's saying this to me right before we come on, and we're just having like a mini conversation. So it does depend on the coach's personality. So Dabo is going to be more lighthearted than uh, when you start a conversation with Nick Saban uh, pre-kick because he's already dialed in and all the way in. Urban Meyer's the same way, completely dialed in by the time it's time for that pre-kick interview. So you kind of have to gauge what personality you're dealing with each time. 
You mentioned locked in and you mentioned Saban. Those two things kind of go together. Few are as locked in as Saban has been. All of us who've known Nick over the years have had our, I think you can call them run-ins. Yours, take us through that whole process and sort of where the where the storyline ended in an unexpected place maybe. Uh, let's start with your interview with Saban the night before. Do you remember this, Chris? Because you were asking him about the quarterback situation, yes. who was going to start. And we ran it on college game day the next day, and you guys had a pretty good laugh about it, right? Wouldn't you say that was the night? I would say we did, but that was, that was not the morning <laughs> of the game. <laughs> right. So, you know, I'm thinking maybe, maybe we're going to be okay here. Um, so I have a pre-kick interview with Saban. It's the, the Louisville game, and obviously the only question anyone had is, Jalen Hurts going to start or will Tua Tungo Bailoa start? And so I asked that question, and I'm pretty sure his response was something along the lines of, well, you might as well wait until they run out there because we're so close to kickoff. It wasn't, he didn't say it was going to be Jalen or it was going to be Tua or why. It was just like, you'll find out in two seconds, you know? Um, so I knew then, like, this is going to be something that we're dealing with the entire game. At halftime, of course, we're interviewing coach. They're up. It wasn't like they were playing very bad. We had seen both quarterbacks by this time. Um, so it's more just a question of assessing quarterback play in the first half and, and then asking, so who, how do you decide who's going to get the most reps, you know, in the second half? And um, he handled that one. Well, I think the, the first half or the halftime interview was the most happy he was because the team was play, playing well coming off of the field. And then post game, I should have known this because we had, um, you guys know, SIDs are sports information directors that work very closely with the coaches and they're constantly in contact and getting them ready for interviews. So when I saw Josh walk up to coach and ask if we could get Jalen and Tua and coach was not interested in us having quarterback interviews right after the game, I should have known what the attitude was going to be. So when my first question is about assessing the quarterback play, you guys all saw the reaction. Remember, it was a little bit of a soliloquy. Like it was like <laughs> everyone's forcing me to make a comment on my quarterbacks and I don't have to do it and I'm not going to do it. So quit asking. And my, re my reaction was just like, I hear you, coach. And we moved on to the defense or something like I knew that we're not barking up this tree anymore. And Chris, I know that you know this, but in those situations, like you can't take it personal. I, like if I would have been like, well, don't yell at me, then that would have just made it worse. We would have all gone downhill. So you almost have to like accept it, Teflon don it and move on to the next thing. And um, the best part about the story, though, is I feel like the closest one of the best relationships I have in college football is now Nick Saban, <laughs> because since then, now we've like gone and done this Mercedes commercial where we're playing basketball and playing horse. And I've heard stories about how much he loved playing basketball and how you know, that's kind of informed the type of coach that he is or why he coaches. And I've seen him let his guard down even a little bit more. And sometimes, you know how it is where if you are a kid and you're the one that gets yelled at, it's because, you know, they like you and they want you to be your best self. That's what I've decided. I'm like, coach is just coaching me up on the sideline. But it was interesting when it happened. I just remember going, it went back up to the booth. And I think Kirk said something like, well, look, she handled, that was like 12 rounds or something like that. She stayed in there and kept boxing. But we all knew that that was going to be a headline the next day. Interesting. You say out of a really uncomfortable situation can be one of the most like rewarding and fruitful relationships yeah. because he, it's a good guy to have trust with. And I think you have, he has, you have each other's trust now more. So. Mm -hmm. 
Haven't you had that experience before where you go through something where it's like, that was so awkward and tense, but then it breeds something different. Like it, it's helpful to the relationship. Yeah. I mean, you hope that it can be, I mean, over the years there have been so many tense situations with coaches in meetings where they don't like something you said in a previous broadcast or some other platform. And that comes into the meeting and it hangs in the air. And all you're trying to do is get stuff out of them to help your viewers. We do this for the customers. You don't interview Nick Saban for yourself. We do it for the viewer and we're trying to get them to open up and give our customers something. And those meetings can be pretty tense because those guys, thin-skinned, hold on to things and take it very personal. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if down the line, you and Nick Saban are colleagues because I think he wants to get into this business. And that would be interesting because yeah. the, the, the most awkward, tense, I would say openly hostile relationship I had when I interviewed a coach was Lou Holtz when he was back at Notre Dame. And it was a season opener, very big opening game with Michigan, a lot on the line for him. We flew three people to South Bend from Connecticut back in those days, a crew of three traveled to it. And then he wasn't going to come out of his office and do it. He was going to blow us off. And that was, that would not have been good. So we talked him off the ledge, got him into the room, but he wouldn't say one word to me or even look at me except when the mic was on and the camera was rolling. And the minute the camera is rolling, he starts smiling and, oh, the lady in the dome. And isn't Notre Dame great? And what a rivalry with Michigan. Finish the interview up. Thank you, coach. Mike off, boom, snap, out of the room. Not, not a word. And it was wow. so, we got what we needed, but it was so, so uncomfortable. And later on, obviously, Luke comes to Notre Dame. I mean, comes to, uh, from ESPN and, and after leaving Notre Dame and we ended up being colleagues and it all worked out in the end. But I, re I remember how, how hostile that was for a few minutes and how tough it was. You have to just keep your composure and still realize you're there to do a job. You know, another funny one um, that happened was the same season, you know, John Calipari is hilarious and he's loud and he's boisterous and he's great. And um, it's a halftime interview. So we just talked about how coaches are, they're already dialed in on something and it's the champions classic. So, you know, Kentucky is playing Kansas. It's a blue blood game. And of course, both teams really want to win. And he was so upset with maybe the way his team was playing defense, I want to say. And so I asked a question about defense and he like looks at me. He's like, I mean, seriously, like I'm telling them what to do and they're not doing it. And he like grabs my arm during the interview. <laughs> I don't know if you see this, but he literally grabs my arm. You can go back and watch this. And um, he asked me, he asked me a question. I was like, coach, I'm not one of your players. <laughs> like, and I was just joking with him. Like, coach, I'm not one of your players. He's like, grab me. He's asking me questions. I'm like, I don't, I don't have the answers to your defense right now. You know, I wasn't expecting it, but at the end of the day, like it was one of those funny moments that I would want to have on like a lifetime fun reel of like the different things that have happened during interviews. I would put that on there too. What do you find is the most rewarding aspect of interviewing? My favorite, I've always said that being in the moments of say an NFL or NBA draft where you're getting to, you've seen the entire arc of, a player's career. You know what I mean? They've worked so hard from their freshman year to, you know, fighting through, maybe they had a little bit of trouble. Maybe they knew they needed to work harder. Maybe, you know, you've heard stories about how they became even more active in their community. Then they became a captain and they became a leader. You've watched them win all the awards. And then on the day of the draft, I always think back to the NBA draft two seasons ago and you're getting, you know, you're getting the tears from Zion, even though he knew he was going to be the number one overall pick, but it's still, 
I mean, I started in South Carolina as a kid who was just trying to make it to college, you know, and now look at where I am. And we're talking about the whole city of New Orleans celebrating just because my name was called and I'm overcome with emotions. So one of the greatest things is just to even be there holding the mic, documenting that moment for a player or a person, because we get to be there in those moments so that they can remember them forever. And they will look back at that and think about that moment and be able to remember some of those emotions and hear how they were feeling. And we get to share that with them. So that's probably the best part of it. Maria, the massive events that have shaken our world, the COVID-19, the George Floyd death and the response to it, Black Lives Matter, really has sort of reshaped the landscape for everybody, including college athletes, people of that age. As you go into a new season, the idea of interviewing them with the backdrop of football in a pandemic and football in a, within a battle for social justice, how do you see, if at all, the equation changing when you talk to young people and the necessity or not of sort of engaging them on those topics or, or seeing if they have something to say about them? You know, Chris, it's interesting because I feel like we're in a time where we're seeing a little bit of a, a dynamic or a power shift where the student athletes are really realizing that their platforms matter. I mean, we've been able to see it with Chuba Hubbard, just one tweet, and it creates an, an instant reaction from the head coach from the university, um, Kylan Hill, Mississippi State, the ability to change the course of history is what the power that some of these student athletes have, and they're just now starting to realize it. So I know that when we're interviewing them, especially in long form interviews, these are questions that are probably going to come up. We're gonna be asking about how the protest was started by the Ohio State Athletic Association and, and which football player initiated it and how many conversations were had to make it come to fruition and realizing that every single time they sit down or every time they say something, they have to be using their platform wisely. And I think that it's going to be something that's interesting to watch them suss through as the season goes on. But I think it's very much so on their minds. And this might be the first time that it really is. And it's just been a trickle down effect. We've seen Deshaun Watson, DeAndre Hopkins, if they're tweeting about buildings on campus, then you see more Clemson players, you know, piping up and saying the same things that they too don't feel comfortable. Or the University of Texas has their athletes putting together a referendum and asking and making requests and, and demands of their athletic association. That's not going to stop. I don't see that stopping anytime soon. And I see really these athletes holding people accountable moving forward. I think it's a good thing. I think it's great that no longer do they feel stifled. Um, no longer do they feel like maybe their name is also only it can only be associated with the brand of their school. Um, if they don't feel comfortable, they feel comfortable speaking out. And that's going to be something that we'll, we'll have to continue to hear. And those are going to be the stories we're talking about if we do have a season, if we actually do have some competition. But it's going to be interesting. I've, I've been enjoying watching players take hold of their power and um, trying to shape their narrative a little bit more. Last thing, we all have our lists. The list includes... Some coaches who are going to be honest with you, not intimidate you, be expressive. Another list where coaches fall short of that criteria. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you who's on the latter list because I know you're still interviewing a lot of these same people, but would you acknowledge that those lists exist and how does it shape the experience or the preparation for you when, when a coach falls in one of those two camps? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in the second camp, it's just straight dread. <laughs> you don't know what you're going to get. Um, and you're like, oh, no, that's on the schedule. Okay, here we go. I'm going to have to, I'm going to put my Teflon on for this one. And then there's coaches like, I mean, Steve Spurrier, 
he's not coaching anymore, but I would always love, it doesn't matter if it's a pregame, it doesn't matter if it's postgame, it's halftime, you're going to get a great quote from Spurrier because he's going to be funny. It's probably going to be a little bit lighthearted. I don't care if they're down. I don't care if they're up. He's going to make fun of somebody. And it's just going to be interesting. Like, you got to have the old ball coach in the first category. And, again, I think when you're in the second, you're just very – you're trying to keep your questions as neutral as possible, like trying to find ways to not have the attack come at you <laughs> if it's possible. And uh, also just knowing that no matter what happens, like I'm still a good reporter after this. <laughs> You got to build your own confidence for those. Maria Taylor, we thank her so much more than a quote, good reporter. Uh, she can do it all. It's tremendous to work with. You can follow her at Maria Taylor on Twitter and on Instagram, where she's very active and has a great feed. Rich Eisen, Michigan man. Rich and I became good buddies when he was a star at Sports Center back in the day. Then he became the flagship anchor for the NFL Network where he's been since 2003, hosting all of the biggest events on NFL Network, the most important sport in America. Also has his own show, The Rich Eisen Show, which features just a bunch of entertaining interviews every single episode. Rich and I sat down and got to swapping stories where the theme became mistaken identity. Delighted to have my good friend and interview extraordinaire man, Rich Eisen, join us here. Rich, good to see you. Thanks for taking time. I appreciate it. Good to see you, Chris. It's been too long, man. You do so many interviews and, and so many great ones and such a breadth of characters that kind of Thanks. wander through your show on YouTube. And obviously you have years of, of doing sports interviews. So when we look back, they can all be perfectly crafted. They can't all be exactly as we envisioned them. Right. And th those awkward moments, uh, which feel terrible in the moment can, can often yield a good story or two. So what leaps to mind as far as one that just went horribly sideways? Oh, sure. Um, let's, let's see. Uh, let's go with one from NFL Network early on. You know, we would always, um, you know, try and give as much access as possible and try and get as many scoops as possible and utilize the NFL's, you know, um, inside access to our advantage. And, um, but you know, that, that comes at a sort of a negotiation, just like any other, any other news outlet. And I remember Ricky Williams, uh, member of the, of the Miami dolphins at the time had some sort of storyline involving, um, a green plant, um, <laughs> that he would occasionally light up and, uh, would perhaps give him a certain sensation. Um, and that's what everyone was talking about. And we had uh, the opportunity to interview his teammate, Junior Seau, at the time. And the question was, you know, you know, Junior doesn't want it the, the, the entire conversation to be dominated by Ricky. And, you know, we don't want you to ask him at all about Ricky. And we're like, look, come on. I mean, this is what everybody's talking about. Uh, we got to ask one question, then a follow-up. And, you know, that's a sort of song and dance. You've been through this before, Chris. And so the song and dance is finally handled. And because the last thing I'm going to do is check my journalism degree completely at the door. Um, so we went back and forth. And he's going to join us. We're going to talk. And he's, he's ready to roll. And he proceeds to call me Rick throughout the entire interview. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, Rick. Uh, well, Rick, you know, and you just didn't feel like you could correct him. 
I don't, you know what, it's, it's like, you know, what do you do here? Uh, especially when it was this whole rigmarole setting up that his access was going to be uh, in question the entire time. And um, he called me Rick throughout the entire, and I just couldn't like, you know, bring it up uh, other than, you know, um, how, how do I, it, it wasn't even on the radio where you could reset, you know, hey, I've got Junior Seau on the Rich Eisen show. It was on NFL Network. Um, there really was no artful way to do it. Did you keep, uh, have to keep from laughing? Was someone else yeah. on the set with well, you was having to keep from laughing? That, you know, I was initially pissed. You know what I mean? Like, okay, like we had to go through this whole rigmarole just to get him to agree to do it, get the Dolphins to make him available, um, and uh, finally have him do it and then proceed to call me Rick throughout. I go from totally pissed to thinking, is he trolling me on purpose? Uh, we had met before. Um, he knew who I was. Uh, then it got to the point where, you know how it works too, Chris. It's sort of a, a happy family if everything is um, at your workplace um, right and done right. And uh, so halfway through, the producers in the control room were having fun. You know, a couple more <laughs> questions, Rick. You know, like getting in my ear. <laughs> And so uh, it was. It's it 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 turned into a gag, to the point where years later, if you get a bunch of us in the room, it's brought up the uh, famed Junior Seau Rick Eisen um, uh, interview on NFL Network. Well, on game day, Lee Corso, bless his soul, used to call your fellow Michigan man and legend Desmond Howard. He called him Dennis one time and so Desmond became Dennis I mean forever to us. so that's how it goes that's it you know I mean you know how it works yeah it's the it's the celebrities who are not in the sports world that you kind of I'm a little more in it earlier I've told the story about Eminem which was uh incredibly awkward but there was an interview that would have been the worst I'd ever done, except it was called off and the interview subject refused to be interviewed by me on game day so you ended up being interviewed about 12 feet away on a small set by Lee Corso. The story starts with backstage to the ESPYs Radio City. I had been presenting on stage back when ESPN talent were presenters, back before they got real celebrities to do it. So I'm still kind of in that glow, exit the stage, and now I'm side stage with the big curtains, the ropes, the pulleys, the sandbags, in the dark, going one way. Coming the other direction, heading for the stage, is this group of people I can't really see. All of a sudden, out of the dark, a huge and hard punch to my shoulder. I'm startled. I look around. It's Burt Reynolds. Come on. And, you know, hey, Burt. I I'd met him. Hey, Burt. No, don't you give me that. Don't you give me that. And he's like pointing a finger at my chest. I have no idea what he's talking about. I have no clue why Burt Reynolds has punched me and is now yelling at me. You know what you did. You know what you did. Don't give me that. I have no idea what, what I did. It's got to be mistaken identity. I, he, I, didn't, I don't talk about Burt Reynolds' personal life. He claimed that I had, when he was at his lowest point, getting divorced with Lonnie Anderson, I had kicked him while he was down. What? His divorce is not a topic that comes up on the show. We talked about him in relation to FSU, and he was Lee Corso's college roommate, so we told old stories about Burt, but it was always in this kind of warm, glowing terms. So I see him at a, at a Florida State football game. He will not come on the set. Corso interviews him. They have a fine time. Later on, I walk over on the sidelines at Doak Campbell Stadium. FSU legend, 
and then 70 plus year old Burt Reynolds comes over and gets in my face again on the sidelines. You don't want to fight a 70 year old man. <laughs> I said, no, no, I, I don't Burt. I do not want to fight. I mean, it's a lose, lose, right? Either Burt Reynolds kicks your ass as a 70 year old man right, and you- everybody sees it or you punch Burt Reynolds living legend on his home field. And now you're a, now you're a villain. I mean, I, right. How do you, there's no win there. Right. I, so I never found I, out rich. I, I figured maybe, maybe it was you. Maybe it was Keith. Maybe it was Dan. Maybe it was one of those mistaken in any cases where somebody insulted Burt Reynolds and mentioned his divorce and he thought it was me and he never forgave me. You never, you never found out what happened. I asked never. Corso, I said, would you please ask him what in the world he's talking about? I have no, he would never tell me. It finally came out that it was about his divorce. And I just, I never mentioned Burt Reynolds' divorce. Oh, <laughs> Nor would I. <laughs> That's ridiculous. The only, I, I love trading these stories here. The only thing that, that compares that, you know, uh, albeit, you know, he didn't star in Cannonball Run, um, but I'm on the set at NFL Total Access uh, at the Super Bowl in Tampa between the Cardinals and the Steelers. And we're on live TV and joining us next is Adrian Wilson, the Pro Bowl safety of the NFC champion Cardinals and the head coach, Ken Wisenhunt. And if you recall, that team that made the Super Bowl had a dreadful final few weeks of the season. Dreadful. Mm-hmm. We were, you know, NFL Network, we saw them uh, at the Thanksgiving night game in Philadelphia where they got waxed a short week trip. This is back when they would take West Coast teams and travel them on a short week. They didn't care. And, and they got waxed and then they would go to New England and they got waxed there. They got totally waxed, but they turned it on in the playoffs and then made a magical run to the Super Bowl, Arizona versus Pittsburgh. And there we are. We're welcoming on Adrian Wilson and um, Ken Wisenhunt. And it's one of those things that we used to do all the time, which was introduce them going to break. Here they are coming on the set, mm-hmm. shaking their hands. And and I would introduce them. Here they are. And there's uh, Adrian and here's uh, Coach Wisenhunt. And Wisenhunt stares through me and on the air, just as soon as we, thankfully, this wasn't caught on the air. He looks at me, he goes, I heard what you said. And didn't shake my hand and sat down. And we're in the commercial break. I now have three minutes hmm. to solve this mystery before I'm on the air live with a clearly hostile guest who <laughs> happens to be the head coach of one of the teams in the Super Bowl. And his, you know, defensive thumper on the back end who's staring a hole through me because clearly Wisenhunt brought him up to speed on whatever concocted thing I might have said. So, of course, I'm going, spending the first minute thinking in my head, what did I say? What did I do? And I'm, I didn't say anything. So I look at Coach during the break. There's now 90 seconds till we're back. And I say to him, I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll bite coach. Like what, what did I say? And he goes, you said we were the worst team to ever make the Super Bowl, the worst playoff team to ever make the Super Bowl. <laughs> and I think in my head, I'm like, first of all, that doesn't sound like anything I would say. I'm not like a hot take artist yeah. or, and it's not anything I would say. And then off, you know, on my mic is open. So the control room here is what he's saying. They get in my ear. They said, Chris Collinsworth said that on Inside the NFL on HBO. <laughs> and I turned to him. I'm like, Chris Collinsworth said that, coach. Not me. I would never say that. And he's like, are you sure you didn't say that? Three, two, one. 
go. Back live on NFL Network, everybody. Here we are. Holy crap. Like, he didn't threaten to hit me, but No, but they was... take it very personally. I mean, they take that kind of stuff very personally. There have been plenty of instances in production meetings, not, not live interviews, thankfully, where the coaches are staring right through you and mad as hell about something you said on a broadcast, but thankfully that's not live TV. Mm. And it went okay though. He didn't. He didn't. He he no, got over it. it. We he had believed a good you. Interview, whatever. And then yeah. you know, as he's leaving, he needed more convincing. And I said to him, <laughs> "Look, I I if <laughs> I would own up to it. And and if I'm going to uh, be tagged with it, I'd like Collinsworth salaries and amount. You know, salary and 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 multiple Emmy awards that he goes along with it. You know, I'll take both of them. But I didn't say it. But the mistaken identity thing, we, we all get that we all get that mistaken thing where I, I I've had people say, you know, they insist that you're Steve Levy. Okay. Then I've had people insist that I'm John Saunders. Okay, that's harder to believe. Or, or ins- insist that yes, you are. You're Mike Tarico. Don't tell me you're not. No. I trust me, he's a friend, but we're not we're not the same person. I mean, Reese Davis and I get get mistaken, so I get blamed for things he said and vice versa. But there was a much more of a resemblance, but yeah, the, the fan and and or interview subject mistaken identity thing is frustrating. But I'd rather, you know, even though my story involved a Super Bowl coach, I would rather have a mistaken identity at the hands of of uh, Burt Reynolds. You sure he wasn't like so addle minded? He thought like you were Dom DeLuise or something. I don't know who like you're that, taking. Or... You're talking about, you know, Paul Crew. That I mean, the Mean Machine, Longest Yard, original one. I mean, Smokey right. and the Bandit. Westbound and down. We're gonna we're I've gonna got, do what I, they say can't be done. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge I'll fan. Tell you, I'll tell you this story. <laughs> so the uh, one year, um, this was back when at the Pro Football Hall of Fame, where they allowed um, presenters to speak. Okay, so when you go into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, you have a presenter, and they used to let that person have a speech um, until. Um, Steve Young went in and his dad, Grit, introduced him and literally Michael Jordan style spent his entire speech running down every slight his son had received in his life from his kindergarten teacher to Joe Montana. I mean, the whole thing, it was like an absolute airing of grievances, a Festivus without the feats of strength. And, <laughs> and it went on forever and ever and ever. So they asked presenters for the next year to write out their speech and and thus it would be um you know vetted um and you would know how long the speech was going to be few people did it others didn't this was the year though that the presenter for ralph wilson the owner of the bills was selected to be our buddy chris berman Mm -hmm. so berman couldn't be host and presenter they up they upgraded me to host. I actually hosted the Pro Football Hall of Fame ceremony because Berman did his thing with, hey, ever let's all circle the wagons, mm. right? So there were two others who went in in that class. They were uh, Bullet Bob Hayes of the Cowboys and Derek Thomas of the Chiefs. They were both posthumously inducted, but the presenters were allowed to speak on their behalf and were told, please keep those speeches to five minutes just five minutes. Thus, Bullet Bob Hayes uh, was uh, presented by Roger Staubach, Hall of Famer, Navy man, did it right down to the second, literally five minutes. You could click it, 
that uh, it's done after five minutes, sat down. Derek Thomas was introduced by the longtime general manager of the Chiefs, Carl Peterson, who proceeded to speak perhaps five minutes for every sack Derek had in that seven-sack game. And it went on and on and on and on to the point uh. where I, as host, was able to get up during the speech, go in the back to find sweet Joe Horgan, who was the longtime um, VP of exhibits and, um, and, uh, and communication who put on this event to find him, to ask him, what should I do? What should I do about this? <laughs> He's like, I don't know. I mean, we don't have like this long cane to come, you know, like, we, I, I, what do we do? And I'm like, all right, I guess I'll go out there and hope this ends soon. As soon as I turned, staring me right in the face, sort of like Burt Reynolds like did to you without the finger and the accusation was Roger Staubach. And he goes, Rich, I was told I couldn't speak longer than five minutes for Bob. How is Carl able to talk as long as he's talking about Derek? I follow the five minute rule. Did Carl never get that five minute rule? And of course I have nothing to do with this. I'm just the <laughs> MC of this because Berman was circling the wagons for Ralph Wilson. And I'm staring at this thinking to myself, two things. One, you know, can I work blue on this, on this pod? Yes, you can. Okay. I, I'm thinking to myself, holy shit, like Roger Staubach is pissed at me. I don't even know what to say to him. And the other one is the eight-year-old who had watched the Summerall Brookshire calling of the games of Staubach under center and the offensive lineman, you know, getting up and down and watching in my basement in Staten Island, New York. And I'm thinking to myself, holy shit, this is Roger Staubach. <laughs> There was a Heisman Trophy winner. I, I've done it for 26 years, and there's only one where the voice in the ear, the earpiece that connects you to the truck, which is uh, it was parked way outside, you know, 200 yards away. But right. first they, they suggested, then they urged, and then they demanded that I walk out there and hook him. End the acceptance speech by this Heisman Trophy winner, which you just don't do. I mean, the show's going to run long over the top of the hour. Sometimes it's boxing. Is it now? I forget what it was that particular year, but the executives got very nervous because this speaker went on and on. He was crying, talking about his family, telling stories. You never know. Sometimes you think these guys might be really brief. I wasn't sure how long Joe Burrow was going to go this most recent year. He went on forever. It was a beautiful speech. Beautiful. Was this was speech. Reggie Bush. And Reggie Bush went on and on and on talking about his family. He was tearful. And I, that's their moment, Richie. I, you cannot walk out there and hook a guy. Yeah. No. You can go to the edge and maybe kind of like try to get his peripheral vision. You, can, you cannot approach the podium or grab him or end it under any circumstances. So that's kind of the, now they, they put the speech earlier before the top of the hour to allow for that. But I'll be damned. I was going to walk out there and end. No. Ended up he had to give the Heisman back, but you know, that's another story. Rich and I also got to talking about the sometimes thankless role of MC at these various galas. Now, he's hosted the NFL Hall of Fame jacket dinner. This is where the new Hall of Famers get fitted with that yellow jacket for the first time. It can be emotional. It's a big deal. One of those long evenings, though, with the multi-tier dais, and sometimes the program can get a little bit unwieldy. It's also the night where the... Uh, broadcaster gets a moment or, and the sports writer gets a moment uh, annually before they get into the Hall of Fame. 
And Myron Cope, the longtime voice of the Steelers, was being inducted into the broadcaster's version of the Hall of Fame, the Rosell Award. You know, Myron's the guy who created right. the Terrible Towel. Terrible Towel, the Steelers. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You know it. And Myron was doing his speech. And I think Myron had been overserved is the mm. only way to describe it because he used his speech to call out the hall for not putting certain members of the steel curtain team in the hall of fame as if they've been overlooked, you know, yes, like yes. <laughs> of all the they only had a dozen have been there. Let's, let's, oh let's, let's come correct like, now. I mean, like, <laughs> like you're, you're down, you're down to a second string linebacker, pretty much, <laughs> you know, about that should be in. And he was talking about Andy Russell, who was a linebacker, not very well known for the Steelers. Andy Russell should be in the hall. And the thing that really, he went on and on and on and on. And I'm wondering, you know, when did, what, you know, how, how long is this really going to go? And um, he then called out that certain people don't deserve to be in over Andy Russell, including that year's uh, inductee, part of the group, none other than Western Pennsylvania's finest, Dan Marino. Swear to God, said Dan Marino's getting in and Andy Russell's not, like that's something wrong. And Dan's like, this is big night. He's about to get his jacket. He's cutting <laughs> into the rubber chicken. People start booing and they're ready to throw stuff at the stage, at which point there's a phone in front of me that doesn't ring, but there's a light yeah. that mimics the ring because it can't have an audible ring that's lit only once in the near 12 years that I've hosted this event. And it was on that moment <laughs> from, again, the aforementioned Joe Horgan saying, what's going on up there? Like, you got to get them off, you know? And like, I literally went from the top down to the bottom and kind of like stood next to him and looked at him in the same way that you're referring to, in the same way that I guess you would look at somebody who's still sitting at your table with the bill paid and dessert already eaten and you're 15 minutes past your reservation time that you'd start staring at the table like, you know, it's time. And I was so close to give him like a little tap on his elbow when he finally did subside. And sure enough, he sent an apology letter to me. What about Dan Marino? Did Dan Marino get a letter? That's great stuff. The one time the bat phone rings at the NFL Hall of Fame jacket ceremony. You were there. That's awesome. Myron Cope. May he rest in peace. <laughs> Rich always makes me laugh. Very dear and supportive friend. You can follow him on Twitter where he's got more than 1.2 million followers at Rich Eisen. Same handle on Instagram. Okay. Anchor leg in this four-person relay. Jeremy Schapp. Proud to say they've covered many of the same events as Jeremy. World Cup, Wimbledon, college championship games. He's the host of ESPN's Outside the Lines and E60, the Sporting Life radio show and podcast, New York Times best-selling author. For the awards, we don't have enough time, even on a double album podcast. The Peabody Award, Edward R. Murrow Award, Robert F. Kennedy Award for reporting on social justice and human rights. He's known for his weighty interviews and we'll get to Jeremy's sit downs with Bob Knight and Mike Tyson among others but I ask him ever been surprised caught off guard by an answer in sort of a run-of-the-mill interview 
I remember once I, I, I want to, I don't want to name him um, at this moment because it, he, he uh, it would be embarrassing for him. But I remember just off the top of my head, I was talking to a famous basketball player and I was, I was with him uh, um, not at a hotel, not in a public place. And uh, his wife was nearby and uh, he had done some controversial things. And I asked him, you know, all the stuff that's been going on recently, uh, you know, the last few years, you know, what, what's your biggest regret? And he looked at me and he kind of, you know, what is it, sotto voce, whispers says, get married. <laughs> As though whispering was going to make it less offensive to the other party involved in his marriage <laughs> right right was no he just didn't want her to hear because yeah. she was about five feet from us so yeah. i was like oh my god next i asked jeremy about the other end of the intensity spectrum interview that he did deep in the interior of brazil with the widow of arturo gotti thunder gotti was one of my favorite fighters ever loved to watch his bouts. He died in Brazil under mysterious circumstances. So Jeremy threw the assignment that put him in a very charged situation. Certainly one of the ones I remember most vividly um, was interviewing Arturo Gotti's widow. And I don't know if you remember the Arturo. Oh, Thunder Gotti is one, was one of my favorite fighters and it met, met a tragic and somewhat mysterious demise. Yeah, so we went to investigate. His wife initially had been arrested after he was found dead in their hotel room in a resort near Recife. And, you know, he's, she was from Brazil and she'd been arrested. Uh, but after a few weeks, they freed her. Um, and I went to interview her. And I guess we knew that she had, you know, shortly before he died, she'd gone to see a divorce lawyer and they'd had his will rewritten, all things, you know, that, um, you know, she obviously wouldn't want to be talking about in that moment. And I started asking her about it. And, it, and we're, we're interviewing her at, I think, a relative's home. It was about a five hour drive from Belo Horizonte. And... And we found her and she agreed to do the interview. And I think we started the interview at like 11 o'clock at night, something like that. And, you know, when I got to that stuff, she got very upset. She got very upset. And, um, you know, I, you know, it's hard now all these years later, remember, was it yelling or screaming or just, but she, she got, she got very upset with me when I brought up to her, asked her about going to see a divorce lawyer shortly before mm. Arturo died. So, you know, but that's what you're paid to do. You're paid to ask those questions. That's an exceptional yeah. situation. A middle of the night in the middle of nowhere in Brazil, asking a, a boxer's widow about his demise is about as challenging as could get. I oh, mean, I'm, I'm not surprised yeah. that that got fraught. It, was, it, it, got, it, got, it got very fraught. There are all kinds of moments. Uh, and then, you know, there are... Um, you know, I've had a, a few run-ins with guys named Bobby uh, Knight and Fisher. Those those are interesting. And, and um, to say the least, I mean, let, let's start with Knight. Obviously, everybody remembers Jeremy the, the famous showdown interview, which you knew there'd be friction going in. Back, it's been twenty years since that, if you can, the passage of time. Crazy. But 
but you had had a run in. You tell me before, <laughs> before that with Knight, that was not your first encounter no. with the general. No, it was, it was actually, so I, you know, he and my dad were friends, you know, that, um, you know, I, I don't know what it says about either of them really. Um, but, uh, they were friends and, and so I'd known Bob Knight. It's not like he came over to the house for dinner and stuff like that, but you know, I'd go to Indianapolis with my dad when he was doing a piece and we'd spend time with him and we'd, we'd hang out with him a little. And he was always very generous with his time with me. So here I am, I'm 23 years old and I've got Bob Knight in the chair and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be tough. You know, I'm going to ask him all the hard questions. So you know, I'm sure I asked him some easy questions for the New York market about Eric Anderson, who at the time was playing for the Knicks. And then it's like the, the story in, the, in those days, like 93, was Bob Knight's mellowing. So I figured I got to ask, is Bob Knight mellowing? Is he still, you know, the hard ass of, you know, season on the brink fame and all that stuff? And so I asked him, <clears throat> I somehow summoned, you know, the, the courage to squeak a question out of my voice box about it. And uh, he deflects but i'm like i'm, I'm going for the follow-up so i had no idea what it was now chris it's been 30 years but it was a follow-up and i'll never forget the response from bob i do have to give him credit it was kind of a master class in condescension <laughs> it was, he, he doesn't just say you're a moron and i'm done with you he he says i'll never forget the exact words you were doing very well up until now but now you're in over your head. And I think, he's, I think he punctuates it. I think, I don't, don't, this is bullshit. This is all bullshit. <laughs> and he starts threading the microphone out from under the sweater. And you know, my heart's racing, you know, and pounding in my chest. And then I'm like, oh no, I just mean to, you know, it's, you know, I just feel like it's a topic, whatever kind of, you know, um, justification I kind of summoned to get him back in the chair and he gets back in the chair you know the 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 tantrum has died off the the intimidation uh performance is over <laughs> and and we resume the interview but um it that one got more heated than the one in uh that we did on ESPN about seven eight years later at one point in that famous live interview Knight got agitated and aggressive because he felt Jeremy was interrupting him. Then he got demeaning, delivering what he might have thought was the ultimate put-down. After a long pause, he told Jeremy, you got a long way to go to be as good as your dad. You better keep that in mind. That got very personal, and you knew it was going to get potentially personal coming in because he held your dad in high regard, and he, he went right after you and, and, of course, ended up looking pretty small for it, and, and, and you handled it brilliantly and, and have to be proud of that because you, you didn't just land the plane in, in, in turbulent air. You ended up you know, doing, I would, I would imagine, what you set out to do, but that had to be, again, you said, you said your pulse had to be going during that interview. Oh, my God. It, it was nerve-wracking because it was, um, as you know, in these situations, Chris, you know, it's um, particularly in that one. That one's unique. And, and I think, I think it's, it's probably different from anything else we've done at ESPN in the sense that it's a confrontational interview, obviously, with a famously cantankerous, that's an understatement, guy. And it was live. You know, there was no margin for error. Um, that never happens in those big newsmaking interviews. You know, it's always a hotel suite and you've got time to kind of relax and get into a moment and build momentum 
and um, establish a rapport during the course of the interview, all those things that you can't do with the limitations of live TV. Not only, um, you know, every question has to be to the point and, but you can't waste any time. We had an allotted amount of time. Do you think that Knight knew because it was live, there's going to be no editing out 100%. what he was going to say. That's so he, he seized it. on that and exploited it. hundred percent. That was why he insisted on that format. And, um, and that's why we did it that way. So it, it certainly increased the degree of difficulty. And, you know, I had, I was 31. This was by far the biggest thing I'd ever done in my career, probably still is. Maybe that's a sad statement, but it's true. And, you know, everybody was watching and there had been, um, there was a lot of pressure and I, I prepared, you know, and I talked to a lot of people. Um, and I prepared, but, you know, there's nothing that can really prepare you for that moment. You mentioned other eccentric figures, Bobby Fischer and Mike Tyson, not usually lumped together in the same sentence, but you have had famous interviews with both of them. When you're dealing with some world who, champions from Brooklyn, Chris, there is a connection. They are linked. I, <laughs> I stand corrected. Other than that, I don't know. I don't know about Bobby Fischer's facial tattoos or, or, or a right. different kind of warfare, a different kind of battle that he was involved in. Uh, also mental, but but those two guys where you know that they're eccentric to say the least could be, especially in Tyson's case, volatile, and that mm -hmm. any word or even inflection could kind of send it in a certain direction. I mean, what what do you remember most about the the kind of the charged atmosphere around talking to Tyson? Always interesting talking to Mike. In fact, we're doing a show now. We're we're putting together a show. Um, uh, which is kind of a, a compendium of Mike Tyson pieces and interviews that I've done over the years. And so I've been thinking about it lately. And he's certainly the guy I've interviewed the most over the years. And he's certainly the guy that I thought was the most compelling and the most willing to kind of explore his own psyche and to let you attempt to, um, in a way, as an amateur, analyze him. Which, which, may, which is why, you know, Mike Tyson interviews are interesting. And, you know, people, people will say, well, you know, Mike Tyson is a volatile guy, guy, obviously. We've seen rage over the years. And we've seen moments like that in interviews from him in press conferences. But with Mike, I, I never had the feeling that he was going to blow up on me. Because we had this rapport going back a long way. Now, at the beginning... <clears throat> you know, 20 years ago, maybe, maybe I did think that was gonna, but there was just something about the way that um, Tyson and I interacted where I felt like he respected you more if you asked him the tough questions. Did he try to intimidate you? you because intimidation is a theme in these interviews. I know that, you know, Knight tries to intimidate people. I looked yeah. about 11 years old, interviewing him a few times early on, and it was palpable. He was trying to intimidate. He tries to intimidate a room full of reporters. Right. Mike, my, my, my attitude always was, well, if you break down the reasons why you should not be intimidated, they are a, can he get you fired? No. Is he going to punch you? No, because that could be career ending. Now, Tyson, you don't know. He might just haul off and try to, if, if, it, if, it, if you catch him in the wrong day with the wrong question. I Did you ever get thought, an intimidation I never, vibe? I never considered that a possibility with Mike. I, I got to tell you, there were a lot of like, average major league pitchers who I thought were much more sensitive to tough questions than Mike Tyson was. And I think, and, and 
it's not a, I shouldn't say it's a rule in boxing because I've met a lot of fighters as well. I've covered fights a lot who, who are sensitive to what you ask. But there, there are fighters who I think what they do is so hard. What they do literally is risking their lives uh, when they get in the ring. And so for a guy like Mike Tyson, I think, you know, he can be set off. We've seen that in certain ways. But, but I think, again, because we had this rapport and because he respected my father, um, he, he kind of came um, to, to our interactions with a different viewpoint. And, um, you know, I thought, you know, it was interesting, though, because, again, I've interviewed him dozens of times in many different situations after big fights, before big fights, in this second and third acts of his life, all that stuff. And Ralph, initially, I think I was more confrontational with him. And, you know, I, I wanted people to remember that, that you know, that Mike um, had done horrible things and he was a convicted rapist and, and that, you know, it wasn't all just fun and games, which is what it's kind of become. And um, I remember though, Ralph Wiley, the late great Ralph Wiley, who was a mentor to me too. He said, you know, I'm, I'm watching what you're doing with Mike and, and, and Ralph wrote beautifully about boxing as he wrote about so many things. He said, I watch, you know, your interactions with Mike. And all I want to tell you is, you know, you should you should try to make an effort to understand him so that your audience understands him you know i understand you know being the tough guy and confrontational and all that but um you're supposed to be the interviewer um and you know he told me basically bear that in mind and it it kind of shaped the way that not only i approached mike in the future but a lot of interviewing mm -hmm. You know, there are moments where there are tough questions you have to ask and you've got to nail it down and, and you've got to be willing to ask it. But you also, you know, we're dealing a lot with people um, whose lives are interesting to our audience. And you want to get them to a place where they're going to talk in an emotionally honest way about themselves. And sometimes, obviously, confrontation is not going to produce that response. And so um, I think over the years, if, if, if you were to stack up all those moments I've had with Mike Tyson in interviews, again, dozens of them, I think um, you found that we found places where he really does reveal himself. That's wonderful advice that Wiley gave you because we're so used to the sparks and the heat coming from confrontation. But just taking the time to, to learn about him a little bit, as much as you could. Yeah. And, and we're in times right now where are so divisive and you're trying to connect with people and, and understand where they are. And I think without awareness, there can be no empathy or compassion. There can be no greater depth of understanding, which is what an interview really should be about. That that's just good advice. And I, I wish more people employed that. And it's great that you took that lesson from, from the prep for that interview and applied it later on. Yeah, no. And, and again, there have been moments, though, I mean, where there have been flare-ups. I, I, I interviewed him. Again, I, this is all fresh in my mind because we've been talking about this project. But, you know, in 2012, I don't want to bore you with the whole details, but in 2012, I was interviewing him when he was starring on Broadway in the one-man show that Spike Lee was directing. We were talking about it, and the, the story at that time was, it's three years after The Hangover, Mike Tyson, you know, the baddest man on the planet, the guy who you know, went to prison, convicted of rape, was now, you know, a funny man. And he was the star, one of the stars of this franchise. And people were um, 
processing their relationship with Mike Tyson in different ways. So I'm asking him about this. And we, you know, I talk about, hey, you know, how does it happen, Mike, that you, a convicted rapist, become this guy that, you know, people love to have on late night talk shows and laugh and all that stuff, you know? And he's, and he, you know, and he said, well, my lawyer was, and he started talking about Vince Fuller, who had been his lawyer. And, and um, I heard him say this many times. He said, you know, Vince Fuller was a terrible lawyer. He was a tax attorney and Don King set me up with this terrible lawyer. There's no way I could win. Words, basically those words in, in so many words. And I said, look, Mike, I've heard you say this a lot. Vince Fuller was not a tax attorney. He was an extremely eminent, prominent criminal defense attorney. He defended John Hinckley when John Hinckley attempted to assassinate the president of the United States, killed a police officer, I believe, and, and paralyzed James Brady. And, and he won um, acquittal by reason of insanity. You know, he's not a tax attorney. And nobody, I, to the best of my knowledge, nobody had ever called him on that before. And I was sick of him misrepresenting it. And he said, I don't care what he was. And he starts, you know, getting very angry um, about my pointing out that Vince Fuller was not a tax attorney. But the implication being that he was wrongly convicted. That he was right? wrongly I mean, that, convicted. That he, that he was innocent. That he just he got was, bad representation. That Don King had, had messed up the whole thing by getting him that attorney. Anyway. So there are moments like that. And then there, you know, there are unpredictable moments. Like I, I told you the story it wasn't an interview, but it was before the weigh-in for the Clifford Etienne fight in 2003. And the weigh-ins in Tunica, Mississippi, the fight was in Memphis. And I'd seen Mike a couple of weeks earlier in Vegas. I got out to interview him as like a preview for this fight, his first fight in a year since Lennox Lewis laid him out. And and I, I come into the hotel or into the parking circle. I get out of the car with our producer, Lori Berlin. And first person we bump into is Mike and he's with his entourage. And he's in an incredibly friendly mood. Like he was often very friendly with me, but even like over the top. Oh, you're my guy. It's great to see you. Anything you want, Jeremy, you know, you want to come up to the suite, you know, are you thirsty? Like literally, you know, I'm like, that's my, my thanks so much. I got to get ready for the live show. I would love to interview you, you know, during the weigh-in, of course, whatever you want, you're my guy. And I say to him, I say, Mike, I got to ask you, I saw you a couple of weeks ago. Everything seemed fine. You seem to be in a good frame of mind. And, and, and you went off and you tattooed half your face. This is like a few days after that tattoo. And they had to postpone the fight because it was healing, all that stuff, as I recall. And I said, Mike, why did you do it? He said, oh, you know, and he got serious. Like, I hate myself. I hate looking at myself. I don't want to be reminded of who I am. I mean, it was like this deep psychological stuff. And it, 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 he was going down this self-loathing path at that point that, um, you know, it, I just wasn't prepared to deal with in that moment. I was like, you know, I, we'll, we'll talk later on the show. And, you know, he's got all these all his guys standing around him. And it just seemed like a weird moment to have that talk. So I say to him though, you know, well, what does it mean though, Mike? What is the tattoo? I want to know. I want to be able to tell people. He's like, well, it's a, you know, it's um, a New Zealand thing. Um, I don't know if he said it. Maori people. Yeah. yeah, it's a Maori thing. He, and I said, I say, oh, it's a Maori thing from New Zealand. And he's, <laughs> he says, yeah. I say, and I think I say like, well, David Tua's, um, from New Zealand, you know, the fighter, David Tu is from New Zealand, the heavyweight that people thought he would fight with, uh, something like that. And he said, I don't give up 
blank about David Tua. Just like that, I don't give up about David Tua. I'm like, okay. He, like he, he did like a 180. I was like, oh my God. Uh, so Bobby Fisher. So yeah, that's a weird one. So the Bobby Fisher thing is the most intense experience I've had asking questions of another human being. And it wasn't an interview per se in the formal sense because it was a press conference, but it kind of devolved into an interview one-on-one between the two of us. And long story short, Bobby Fischer, the great world chess champion, fugitive from justice, 2005, he becomes a citizen of Iceland, which allows him to be freed from prison in Japan. I fly to Iceland because I'm hoping there might be a moment as he's getting off the plane where I can talk to him. And then he's going to go back into seclusion. It's, he's been the white whale for generations now of people in the business and not just in sports, why he never defended the championship, what went wrong with him, why he shut off all these people, why he says all these hateful things. And, and uh, to, my, uh, to my enduring surprise, he has a press conference the day after he gets to Iceland. I'd seen him at the airport the night before, and then it becomes just this confrontation between me and him. And I really thought going into it, you know, he's, he's been acting so erratically for so many years. And I'd mentioned my father to him the night before with whom he had been very close from the age of 12. I'm not sure if he remembered him. I'm not sure what he remembered, but of course, a chess champion, you have to have an extraordinary mm-hmm. memory. You have to have one of the great memories. To be the greatest chess player ever, you have to have almost superhuman powers of memory. Anyway, he did, and it became this very ugly confrontation, and he said anti-Semitic things, and uh, you know, just wild things, and I was put in a position where I had to, you know, I kept asking him questions, and meanwhile, the rest of the press corps there from all over the world are asking him these totally innocuous anodyne questions about whether he's going to learn the language, if he's going to go whale watching, you know, like <laughs> nothing about none of the real questions. I'm not making it up, none of them. And so I'm put in the position of being the only one. And um, and the setting needn't have been awkward had you been given a one-on-one interview. You, you're pressed in now into having to do this in, right. in a situation where for you and for him, it becomes increasingly awkward because you got the world press sort of looking on and, mm-hmm. and as spectators to this evolving train wreck. And it got very ugly at a certain point. Like I couldn't just continue to ask him questions. I had to basically defend my family's honor. If you want to put it that, uh, mm-hmm. that way. Um, and, uh, did you ever bring it around to whale watching at the end or did you do end when? To- <laughs> yeah, that was, it. that was it. And Bobby, by the way, yeah. You, will you be eating the minky whales like everyone else here? I hope you enjoyed this debut double album. I appreciate and applaud your stamina. Love it if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm so grateful to Jeremy Schaff, Rich Eyes, and Maria Taylor, and Willie Geis for sharing their stories. And to this podcast co-executive producer, Jennifer Dempster, and to producer Jason Whitehill for his ideas and editing skills. I'll talk to you again soon.